that we started exploring last night. We talked about the relationship between politics and culture, which takes on this sort of chicken and the egg metaphor, whereby one produces the other, but in turn produces the first one, right? The, the culture produces our politics, but our politics also has a causal effect upon our culture and passes down what you might regard as genetic traits generation after generation after generation and it heads in this trajectory that at the moment seems to be authoritarian in nature and that's extremely problematic and we fleshed that out last night tonight i want to take it in a different direction and use it as a springboard for asking a question about truth is truth important does truth matter why does it seem as though nobody really cares what's actually true or false that we, we've gotten to the point where certainly in the political sphere in the political arena the end all and be all is whether or not a particular narrative helps your side or helps your agenda not whether it is rooted in anything resembling truth why is that closing argument my name is walter hudson twin cities news talk am 1130 103.5 fm Catch us streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you tuning in. You can catch up on past shows by doing a search for Closing Argument in your iHeartRadio app, and our channel will pop up there for you. You can also be part of the show this evening. 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. Brad Omlin takes those calls and produces the show. So I'm going to start with... My premise. I'm going to start with my answer to the question, and then we'll dive into some examples of how this is playing out in uh, the the current moment that we find ourselves navigating. We spent a lot of time last night talking about what I call the culture of conquest versus the culture of consent. And broadly speaking, these are two opposing paradigms, two opposing worldviews that are playing a tug of war for the soul of human beings on this planet and in this country. The culture of conquest is a paradigm whereby you proceed as if the only possible way that you can hope to obtain and keep your values is by conquering somebody else, by beating somebody else, by placing them under your submission and then taking what you want. By contrast, the culture of consent recognizes that in reality, in truth, the only means of production, the only real way in which actual values can be sought after and obtained and kept is a condition of liberty. And that the Everything that is wonderful in our lives that we have to be thankful for and that we actually value depends upon consent. It depends upon free choice, liberty. Let's bring it down to the micro level. Think about your relationships. Think about your most cherished experiences, transactions, and relationships, your marriage, your relationship with your children, your relationship with your parents, the your best friends throughout your life, 
the organizations that you've been a part of, your community, the place where you grew up, the, you know, the bars that you've patronized, whatever the case may be. What makes, what gives those relationships value is the choice to engage in them. What if instead of, you know, getting to choose the person you were married to, it was chosen for you. It was mandated. Another way to put this, and, you know, this is an example that Ben Shapiro has given on a, uh, a number of times. What if on your anniversary, on the anniversary of your wedding, you went up to your wife and you said, honey, uh, our plan tonight is I'm going to take you out to uh, a fantastic dinner at the most expensive place in town. And then we're going to go to the theater and we're going to catch a show. And uh, then we're going to go out for, for dancing and drinks to close out the night. And, you know, her response would be, wow, that sounds fantastic. I'm so glad you you're, you made those plans for us. And you followed it up with, yep, that's my obligation. That's my duty. That's, uh, I'm, I'm, re- I'm honor bound to make sure that that happens. <sighs> it's tough. It's really tough to uh, follow through on that, but. I'm supposed to, so here we go. Some men might actually feel that way. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Some men might actually feel that way. And their wives know it, and we all know what those marriages are like, don't we? Right? We all know what those relationships are like. The The value of your most personal, intimate transactions is not in the stuff you do. It's in the fact that you want to do it with that person. That's what gives it value. That's what gives it merit. And that same concept, that same principle applies to literally every transaction in your life. The reason you feel good when you accomplish something, you know, when you achieve something at work is because you were chosen to do that job and because you, you get a, a affirmation of a job well done by the people you're doing it for, whether it be your boss or your customers or whatever the case may be, your coworkers, the, and that's all predicated. It all works only because you know that they actually mean it, that they've actually chosen to engage with you in that relationship. Choice lies at the root of all of it. You must be free to make choices in order for anything of value to exist in the first place because the concept of value itself begs the question of value to whom? Value as a concept cannot exist without choice, without freedom, without the condition of liberty. That's how important it is. And so when I talk about the culture of consent, I'm talking about something that a culture that is rooted in the truth of human nature, a culture that is rooted in fact. And this and this is where I come full circle back around to my question of why do we see ourselves in a place where it seems as though truth is dead? Nobody really cares about what's true. Nobody really cares about facts. They only care about what benefits their own personal, political, or social agenda. And it's because of the culture that is, that is waning or that is waxing in our current moment versus the one that's waning. The culture that's waning is the culture of consent. The idea that, you know, we ought to proceed in a condition of liberty where our relationships are defined by consent and by choice and by value under the umbrella of individual rights. That culture is waning. 
people, it's, it's less popular now than it has been in my lifetime. And in its place, the dawn, uh, it, really a return of the culture of conquering, the culture of conquest is upon us. And the culture of conquest is one whereby truth does not matter. In fact, truth is the enemy, right? Truth is the enemy because truth can potentially undermine whatever it is you're trying to achieve. You know, when you, when you believe that the only way that you can obtain and keep values is by conquering some enemy, then that becomes a rationale. That becomes a justification for doing literally anything, for sacrificing literally anything in pursuit of your goal. Truth does not matter in that context. And that is why we see ourselves, you know, facing a, uh, a scenario where, you know, there's article after article that's been in our stack. You know, we've, we're going to go through some of them here tonight that raises this issue of the, the seemingly willful abandonment of truth as a value in our culture, in our society. From The Guardian, two of the most monstrous regimes in human history came to power in the 20th century, and both were predicated on the violation and despoiling of truth, on the knowledge that cynicism and weariness and fear can make people susceptible to the lies and false promises of leaders bent on unconditional power. As Hannah Arndt wrote in her 1951 book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, the ideal subject of totalitarian rule is not the convinced Nazi or the convinced communist, but people for whom the distinction between fact and fiction, i.e. the reality of experience, and the distinction between true and false, i.e. the standards of thought, no longer exist. Arndt's words increasingly sound less like a dispatch from another century than a chilling description of the political and cultural landscape we inhabit today. A world in which fake news and lies are pumped out in industrial volume by Russian troll factories, emitted in an endless stream from the mouth and Twitter feed of the President of the United States, and sent flying across the world through social media accounts at lightning speed. Nationalism, tribalism, dislocation, fear of social change, and the hatred of outsiders are on the rise again as people locked in their partisan silos and filter bubbles are losing a sense of shared reality and the ability to communicate across social and sectarian lines. This is not to draw a direct analogy between today's circumstances and the overwhelming horrors of the Second World War era, but to look at some of the conditions and attitudes, what Margaret Atwood has called the danger flags in George Orwell's 1984 and Animal Farm that make a people susceptible to demagoguery and political manipulation, the nation's easy prey for would-be autocrats. To examine how a disregard for facts, the displacement of reason by emotion, and the corrosion of language are diminishing the value of truth and what that means for the world. The term truth decay has joined the post-truth lexicon that includes such now familiar phrases as fake news and alternative facts. And it's not just fake news either, it's also fake science, fake history, fake Americans on Facebook, and fake followers and likes on social media. Donald Trump, the 45th president of the United States, lies so prolifically and with such velocity that the Washington Post calculated he'd made 2,140 false or misleading claims during his first year in office, an average of 5.9 a day. His lies about everything from investigations into Russian interference in the election to his popularity and achievements to how much TV he watches 
are only the brightest blinking red light among many warnings of his assault on democratic institutions and norms. And of course, this is coming from the perspective of somebody who's obviously uh, a lefty who's writing this. But we can set all that aside. We can set the perspective aside to recognize that the root at the look, here's, here's one thing that both sides of the partisan divide agree on. Truth is a casualty of this war that we find ourselves in right now. Is it not? Can we not agree on that? You know, regardless of the whether you're pro-Trump, anti-Trump, whether you're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, conservative, where you find find yourself, can we not agree that truth has become a casualty of this culture war that we find ourselves in at the at this moment? The 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 desire to propel your narrative and to reaffirm your preconceived ideas and to confirm your bias that impulse is so strong right now across the board that people aren't even remotely interested in considering evidence or claims or thoughts that contradict their preconceived ideas and that is a very dangerous place for us to find ourselves in but but it makes sense that we would be there it makes sense that this would be the place where people find themselves, given the fact that we're seeing this dawn of, or, or this reemergence, really, because this has been the dominant culture throughout human history, this reassertion of the culture of conquest. Because, you know, conquest doesn't care about the truth, right? The, it's, the culture of conquest is from where we get the term, history is written by the winners, right? Like, that's, that is the, the impulse or the, the sentiment of conquerors. If I win, I get to write the history, therefore the truth doesn't matter. I can tell the story the way I want it to be told rather than the way it actually happened. And you know, the the, the problem with that should be self-evident. And if we actually care about achieving maintaining our own autonomy and having our own individuality and being able to to enjoy the the fruits of those relationships and transactions which emerge in the in the condition of liberty as a product of our choice, if we want to maintain our humanity, in other words, then we need to oppose this and we need to root it out. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855 is the number to join us. The fallout from the Helsinki summit between President Donald Trump and Russian President Vladimir Putin continues. The latest here from the Star Tribune, two weeks before his inauguration, Donald Trump was shown highly classified intelligence indicating that President Vladimir Putin of Russia had personally ordered complex cyber attacks to sway the 2016 election. The evidence included texts and emails from Russian military officers and information gleaned from a top secret source close to Putin who had described to the CIA how the Kremlin decided to execute its campaign of hacking and disinformation. Trump sounded grudgingly convinced, according to several people who attended the intelligence briefing, 
But ever since, Trump has tried to cloud the very clear findings that he received on January 6th of 2017, which his own intelligence leaders have unanimously endorsed. The shifting narrative underscores the degree to which Trump regularly picks and chooses intelligence to suit his political purposes that has never been more clear than this week. And then they go through and, and you know rehash everything that we know from the past few days regarding the back and forth on the Helsinki summit. And so, look, I I can already I can already hear the objections, right? Well, this is fake news, right? You can't trust. Was this actually Star Tribune reporting? No, this comes from the New York Times. It's reposted by the Star Tribune. You can't trust the New York Times. You can't trust the Star Tribune. It's all fake news. Anonymous sources. Okay. All right. Look, I, what, what can I say? Right. I, I, I can't argue against that. If you don't want to believe it, then don't believe it. That said, in the absence of evidence to the contrary, I, I don't know how I'm supposed to proceed. Right. Well, just by the nature that Trump can't get what he's saying straight, says everything you need to know about it. Right. We don't need this report to tell us what we already knew. Well, and, you know, it's like we talked about earlier in the week when we broke this down with Helsinki. I believe, look, I don't think there's something shady going on between Donald Trump and Russia. I don't think there's something shady going on with the administration or that the campaign colluded with Russia in some way. What I do believe and what all of the evidence seems to point to and suggest is that Donald Trump is very sensitive about being regarded as a winner. Like that's his, that is his brand. If you go and you look at and you listen to everything that he's said and done and written over the, his entire career, the theme, the overall theme is I'm a winner. I'm a winner. I hire the best people. I do the best things. I'm awesome in everything I do and everything is because of me and you know, I'm great and everything I'm involved with becomes great because I'm involved with it. Like that's his whole spiel. Like is. Honestly, I want to hear from the person who disagrees that that's, that that's who Trump is and that that's what he believes in. I mean, I, I think even his fans, even his most fervent supporters would affirm that that's what he's about, is winning. That's I mean, what they he, like about him. You're right. He literally says, I'm about winning. I'm a winner. You're going to get sick of the winning. Win, win, win. Like, that's all that comes out of his mouth, right? So if we can take that at face value and accept it for what it is, doesn't it make sense that he would be defensive? And we've seen him react defensively in other situations to other stimuli. Doesn't it make sense that he would be very sensitive and re- and reactionary against any suggestion that his win against Hillary Clinton, momentous as it was, dramatic and unexpected and noteworthy, you know, the a type of victory that shall echo throughout history, right? The conquest of Hillary Clinton by Donald Trump. Any suggestion that that was due to something other than the awesomeness of Donald Trump, that it was due to some kind of cheating, even if the cheating didn't involve him, even if he didn't sanction it or wasn't a part of it, if somebody else did it on his behalf, that places an asterisk on his presidency, in his view. It underscores the achievement of having defeated Hillary Clinton, and he can't have that. And so he's willing to go out there and do what he did in Helsinki. He's willing to go out there and throw his own intelligence services under the bus and stand with a foreign 
human rights violating despot and say you could trust this guy over our own guys who who Trump himself is in charge of and hires and who the federal government pays in order to discover this stuff and investigate this stuff. I mean it really is it really is bizarre, but it's it fits this mold that I talked about at the top of the hour whereby when when your perspective, when your paradigm is this culture of conquest, which I believe Donald Trump's absolutely is. Donald Trump that's what Donald Trump has brought to the Republican Party, much to my chagrin. He's brought with him a culture of conquest. And we're all, we're all conquerors now. You see it. You see it expressed on social media, and you see it expressed in the, the campaign rhetoric of all the candidates and the party itself now. We're all conquerors now. We're owning the libs. We're taking it to the left. We're, we're draining the swamp. We're going to conquer the deep state. And listen... There's virtue to that, right? Like there's, there's a, there's an, a kernel of merit to the idea that there is an enemy that needs to be defeated. But the question becomes, what's the point of defeating them? What's the point of defeating them? What's the point of owning the libs? What's the point of draining the swamp? What's the point of conquering the leftists among us? And I would submit that the point is to establish the condition of liberty and to affirm the value of truth. And to uphold what is moral and righteous and just. That's the purpose of defeating the left. But from this culture of conquest that Donald Trump is bringing to the table, the answer is because we can. And because it's fun. And because we're getting back at them for things they've done to us. And that's not a good enough reason for me. Perhaps it's a good enough reason for you. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. We'll take uh, Colin from Minneapolis when we return. 651-989-5855 if you want to get in queue. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. All right. You've heard me sound off on this particular moment that we find ourselves in in political and cultural history. Now it's your turn. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Edson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. We're streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Brad Omlin takes your calls and produces the show. Let's go right to Colin in Minneapolis. Thanks for holding. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um, so I had several comments I wanted to make. Uh, the first off being, like, you know, you use the word cheating in regards to, you know, how Trump may or may not have won. And, and I think it's, uh, the verbiage is important because, honestly, no indication that anyone but the Democrats cheated during the election process. I mean, it was the Democrats who rigged their own primaries and did everything they could. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's cheating that we found out what their dirty laundry is, then, I mean, what is playing by the rules. Um, secondly, you know, you, you talk about the culture of conquest and how you know, it's, you know, w- winners write history. Well, after seeing years and years of the center being moved farther and farther to the left because people on the right are more concerned with holding the moral high ground than they are actually winning and advancing a conservative agenda, honestly, I, I'm, I'm okay with that. I would rather see us dig our heels in and combat the the propaganda and the, the culture war that the left has been winning. Combat it with what? Decades. Combat it with what? I want to focus on this because I think you're, you've settled on a, a key point here. 
And and I would contest this notion of the reason why conservatives have been losing the culture and why the political center has been moving more and more to the left, which I absolutely agree with you. There's no question. It absolutely has been. But I would contest that the reason why is because conservatives have been so resolved on this notion of holding the moral high ground. The opposite has been true. It's specifically because conservatives refuse to argue from a moral perspective and to argue for the morality of capitalism and the morality of individual rights and the moral necessity of liberty that we've allowed our grasp on those wonderful essential aspects of, of this republic to be degraded over the years. You're, you're, I, I don't disagree with you there. The problem is we are dealing with people who don't believe in moral objectivity. The left, the, the left is full of and, and is quite honestly the entire, like, they are the ones who purport and push forward the idea of moral relativism. Which I find funny when you when you look at how they attack Donald Trump for the things he said, and well, you can't say this sort of things about women, but you know they they have an objective standard about things that can and can't be said, and it, it seems like they they take a moral objection to it, but they don't believe in moral objectivity. I mean, look at how they feel about you know abortion. There's it's a women's rights issue and and not you know a murdering children issue, which is you know there there is an objective moral stance to take on it. But because the left and in their mental gymnastics, they they don't they purport to not believe in, in moral objectivity. And yet they try to argue moral stances. The problem is it, we had we've had my my understanding of it is we've had for years, decades, I would say, uh, a conservative conservative politicians who are more concerned with not looking so rigid and, and holding what they believe to be the moral high ground as opposed to. Fighting and and when I say moral high ground, I don't necessarily mean morality. I mean they they want to look like they're willing to or willing to work and work across the aisle. What, what I hear you saying, the left doesn't the left doesn't want to work across the aisle. They want to push their right. agenda. They want to hammer home. They they want to you know we had eight years of Obama who wanted to fundamentally change correct the very fabric of American culture and, and try to to make, convince everyone that. America was fundamentally flawed because mm-hmm. of its founding, right? And it's there. So I, I take I, I take some issue with what you're saying simply because, honestly, at this point, I am I'm less worried about optics and looking like we're holding the moral high ground, and more concerned with actually pushing a conservative agenda. And sometimes, you know what? It might take someone as boorish as Donald Trump because I'll, I'll tell you the truth. During the campaign or during the you know primary season and the, and the campaign running up to the election, I w- he, Donald Trump wasn't my first, second. He might have been my third or fourth choice. I I supported Rand Paul in the beginning. After he dropped out, I went to Cruz, and after Cruz dropped out, I you know I was I was never ever going to vote for Hillary. I mean obviously, and quite frankly, I, I had my own misgivings about. Um, Johnson. So, you know, and I, and I saw some of the things he said. Granted, I, I knew during the, the debates that a lot of it was bluster, but I figured that if he held up to 50% of what he was saying he was going to do, we might be okay. And yeah, I do have issue with what he says. I'm not one of the, I'm not a Donald Trump sycophant by any stretch of the imagination. I will criticize him when I think it's due, but I, I have a hard time really taking serious a lot of the criticisms of him because a lot of it is being pushed by people who were never Trumpers during the campaign and to this day still are. I mean, why does that matter? Why does that matter? 
because I don't think they're they're not looking at it with any sort of objectivity or any any they're not looking at it fairly. They're they're literally looking to take apart any possible thing he does. I mean, I, I, a meme that I saw it broke down two separate Huffington Post headlines. One of them said, "If you judge people by the way they eat their steak, you're probably the worst kind of person." And then the next Huffington Post headline says. Donald Trump eats his steak well done, a.k.a. the worst possible way. Like they, <laughs> they try to hold both sides of every single argument anytime they can for no other reason than to take down Donald Trump. And when you see decades' worth of pictures of all these people who are screaming treason uh-huh. over what Trump said at the, the summit following – or at the uh, uh, press conference following the Helsinki summit, oh, the, the, these falling relations with – Putin is is treason, and you've got Chuck Schumer eating donuts with Putin. Like I, I can't take anything they say seriously. I can't take any of the criticism seriously because it is so, so hyperbolic. Okay. Uh, so, it, so fair it, enough. I, I so let's set aside. It. So let's set aside all of that. Let's let's set aside the the how horrible the left is, which I agree. How untrustworthy the media is, which I agree, and how you you can't take. Most of what any politician or public figure says seriously. All right, fair enough. So all of that set aside, is there an inherent value in truth which we ought to be pursuing in the public sphere? Like, should what's the point of beating all these people if not to get to a point where truth matters again? I, I mean... Yeah, obviously that is where we need to get, but the problem is we haven't been winning for years and years. The culture. So, are we winning now? Put- are we are we getting closer to a culture that values consent and liberty and human freedom now than we were in the past? To be absolutely frank, I mean, and, and this, I'm going to run the risk of getting too far off into the weeds here. You know, I've, I've called into the the morning show a few times, and they get they you know they get a little sideways when I start talking. Honestly, I think we've reached a, a point in American society where it is not going to happen through peaceful means. Okay. And, and I'm, not, right. I'm not advocating for violence. I, I understand. The imagination. But I, I truly, when I look at the rhetoric that's happened after, after the congressional baseball practice shooting where right. Scalise was almost killed, right. and for a week and a half, they're like, okay, we, we need to we need to tone down this rhetoric because people are getting shot, and then right. two months later they're right back to the Republicans are going to yeah. kill people with their legislation. Right, and Maxine Waters with her go get in their face and build a crowd and all this jazz. Yeah, precisely. I I I, um, I honestly I don't believe that I I I do believe rather that we have reached a point in our culture and in our society where it is going to take an unfortunate amount of violence to swing the pendulum back to the middle because we, we've reached a point, like you were saying earlier, where both sides are so dug in that they don't want that, that neither side. And, and I will, I will honestly say that about the right, as much as the left, there are people on the right who do not want to see or will not even acknowledge actual evidence of where they're wrong. Well, where, I, where there I, might be opportunities to come to the middle and work. I feel as but, though I feel as though, and this has been. A, I appreciate your everything you've been sharing with us tonight. This is probably the longest call we've ever taken, but it's been meaningful and and full of good uh, opinion and inf- information. I feel as though we've come full circle to 
being ex- on the exact same page because what you're saying right now at the end of the call is fundamentally no different than what I've been saying all tonight. Now, my focus might have been a little bit different on where I was directing it, but th- this notion that we're we're at a point where we're at a crisis point where oh, if, absolutely. if right and 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 so the question becomes how do we resolve the crisis in a way where we're going to land on our feet because here's the thing aside from the american revolution the american revolution is is an exception to the rule revolutions don't tend to end well they don't tend to end well for individuals and for the the condition of liberty and for the the republican ideals you know small r republican ideals that uh, those of us on the right adhere to and enjoy so you know i'm not particularly eager to get to that point so we need to we need to check things quick but i I do want to point out that it's not the right that's pushing for a revolution well i don't know that that's true i mean look and primarily yeah is the left unhinged and they want they want to see violence in the streets that's the way they've always been what i'm what i'm seeing now though is i'm seeing a right that is increasingly approaching that or responding to that with the attitude of bring it on let's fight yeah and the thing that and i guess that's sort of where my stance was where you know i I said it's it's nice to have or nice it's yeah no it's nice and it is refreshing to have someone sure finally willing to fight back because we have a brass tacks you know i i've been i'm i'm 30 you know i i came of age during the early years of the bush administration i really i started being politically aware right around bush's second term i've i've always been fairly conservative i went libertarian for a while i'm i'm slightly less libertarian and more traditional conservative constitutionalist party at this point um it's i i appreciate your thoughts colin we do got to go to a break make sure you uh you check back with us uh, as we continue in this endeavor. Appreciate you joining the program. We'll talk to Anthony in Minneapolis when we return. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Twin So as I spent the break reflecting upon the conversation I just had with Colin, it strikes me that this distinction that I'm drawing between the culture of conquest and the culture of consent may be misinterpreted or may be being perceived incorrectly as, a, as advocacy for some sort of passivity. You know, when I talk about a culture of consent, a condition of liberty wherein relationships are defined by choice and free association and the the mutual advantage of trade and transaction that uh, that does not exclude aggression in defense of liberty right it does not exclude passion and a a sort of veracity when it comes to fighting for your rights and to fighting for the condition of liberty. Of course we should do that. You know, the, the error of the culture of conquest is that the, both the ends and the means are combat, right? Like the, the, the purpose is to, uh, to prepare you. Look, look at the way the left operates, wherein they, they perpetuate conflict. Their continued success depends upon the continuation of conflict, 
right? The, the racial strife is never going to end. The social injustice that needs to be addressed through, through socialist policies is never going to be settled. They're never going to reach their promised land because it, if they ever did, if they ever solved the problems that they've identified, then there'd be nothing left to fight for, right? And fighting is what they're all about. That's their re, that's their driving impulse is to fight and to conquer. Whereas if you're coming from our side or where we've been traditionally conservatives, Republicans, libertarians, we traditionally come from this culture of consent where we're willing to fight, but it's always with reluctance and with the objective of returning to a condition of peace. Right? I mean, how many, how many times throughout history have our, our great national figures, you know, Reagan comes to mind, articulated this idea of peace through strength, strength being the means, but peace being the objective, peace being the end. We want to get to a place where we can we can conduct ourselves peacefully in a condition of liberty. So this is not a pass. This is not advocacy for pacifism that I'm talking about here. I'm not saying we ought to let the left run roughshod and get away with whatever it is they want to do. That Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi should go unanswered. Quite the contrary. What Trump brings to the table in terms of his willingness to fight and his willingness to take the fight to them and to conquer them in a sense in the political arena that is necessary and that is desirable the problem is when the when fighting becomes the objective rather than the means when fighting becomes the what we're trying to get to rather than what we're trying to get through in order to achieve a condition of peace a condition of liberty let's talk to anthony in minneapolis Thanks for holding. No, I appreciate you guys taking my call. Uh, the reason why I was calling, I just want to talk about the whole morality thing and whatnot, and also touch a little bit on the being passive and the misinterpretation of that. You know, uh, as a Catholic and as a constitutionalist, um, and as you know, I, my list goes on. You know, I've got a beautiful interracial family, and we're mm-hmm. we're very politically involved, but at the same time, we follow. Three main rules that, you know, you don't talk politics, abortion, and religion at the dinner table. So we don't, your guys' uh, show is my outlet to vent. Most of the time I'm a pretty quiet, well-kept guy, and I just sit back and listen. But um, as far as being passive, because someone's more morally, people misconstrue that for being passive. Mm. And it's not being passive, it's just I'm allowing my actions to speak louder than my words. I can sit here and talk to I'm blue in my face, or I can do this and show you how it works. And it's your choice whether or not you're going to see that, but more times than not, I like to give people the benefit of the doubt and humanity the benefit of the doubt, believe that they will see it. And so I think a lot of Trump's issue is that he uses too many words. His actions should speak loud enough for himself. I mean, if you look at numbers, what Trump's doing is phenomenal, but everybody's focusing on his words. And that's where the problem is. So I think a lot of times people misconstrue with just being passive as as a weak person. But really what I'm doing is I'm allowing my actions, you know, for myself. I'm not going to sit here and use words. You will see. You know, and more times than not, that will prevail. And as far as the morality things, I think with a lot of people saying, oh, it's about time that Republicans, in a sense, stoop to this level of the left. 
And like you mentioned earlier in the show, where the left has always been a, a, a very aggressive in the street, right. uh, and we're starting to see more of the right doing that. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason is is because when you focus your attention so much on fighting something, and you you let yourself let that consume you, mm-hmm. you become what you're fighting. And I think that's why we're seeing more and more of the right starting to, the lines are getting blurred. Other than, you know, they, they look the same. You know, I mean, you look at the, the left and the right and way, the, the far right, the far right, the far left, which is, it, it's the lines are becoming blurred, you know. And I think we need to take that moral high ground. And we need to, you know, take that stance and allow our actions to speak. I appreciate the thoughts, Anthony. I appreciate the call. We do have to go to our top of the hour break. Look, you know, like I say, my view here does not exclude fighting. Of course, we need to fight against the inciters of violence. We need to fight against initiations of force. That's what justice is. It's putting a wrong right, and that requires strength. It requires action. It is not a passive process. But what I fear is that we're losing sight of the objective, which probably ought to be peace and liberty. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM, closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. We're streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you sticking with us, hanging out with us this evening. We will be live and local tomorrow as well. The past couple of Fridays, you may have noticed we've been out, but uh, we will be here tomorrow night, so be sure to join us then. 651-989-5855, the number to be part of the program. Brad Ullman taking those calls and producing the show. Let's go right to Anthony in St. Paul, a regular caller. Thanks for holding through the long break. Hey, no problem. So as, as you noticed, I am, I'm a different Anthony. There was the Anthony in Minneapolis and the Anthony in St. Paul. Right. So, so one thing I want to say is I, was, I didn't even get political until, the, until 2015. All throughout high school, I kind of had this, this take on the political scene the way you do, Walter, mm-hmm. where I think that if, you know, if we play the right way and we take the moral high ground and we, you know, we just genuinely don't do anything that the left would do, that it would work, you know, that we could we could uh, reach across the aisle and be friends with them. and get, it well, would at, at, I, I'm going to stop you right there just to make this one point, because this is something that I, I heard Colin say, and I think I heard Anthony from Minneapolis say as well. I don't believe at any point throughout my, my rants today or yesterday I have advocated reaching across the aisle. Like, I don't know where that notion or perception has come from. But at, at any rate, continue. I can, well, the reason we say that was it it's it's almost it's almost implied it's it's almost implied Uh, i'm uh, interested in how it's implied how are you how are you inferring that that we have to act in some sort of bipartisan or or kind of manby pamby middle of the road way well because anytime and again it's donald trump but anytime 
Trump does something that um, a traditional Republican wouldn't do, which he's not traditional at all. He right. does his own thing. But a traditional Republican would be conceding to Democrats. And because Trump is not conceding to Democrats, there's, he's, getting oppo- he's getting opposition from Republicans as well. I think that's true, I, and this is this is the this is the problem. I think that's true. I think what you just said is correct. However, I don't think that's the only reason. Like, this, this is the problem with Trump is that he his opposition is so. And Colin spoke to this as well when he talked about never Trumpers and 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 what have you. His opposition is so committed to being opposed to him that it creates this kind of boy who cried wolf scenario whereby. When somebody tries to point out, or or another you know analogy would be the emperor has no clothes moment, where when somebody tries to point out, hey, this thing he did actually was wrong on the merits, nobody's open to hearing it because it's drowned out or blends into the the resistance machine that you constantly hear. You're not wrong. You're not you're not wrong at all. But I think that that that's the voice that. Uh, we're choosing to hear. There's many, many voices out there, and that those are just the ones that are being lifted up. Uh-huh. And one thing I was going to say to add on to call it, I was going to say, um, I definitely don't think that things are going to end out peacefully. Mm-hmm. And again, like him, I don't advocate for any kind of violence. Mm-hmm. But I think there's going to be a revolution or something similar to a revolution before this is all over. Give it till November. I'm, I'm telling you. Wait, there's going to be 10 to 15 red seats. And there's going to be mass hysteria. And there's going to be, they're already advocating to shoot Republicans on site. And, and who's saying that? Because I haven't heard that one. Oh, my God. You should. You, well, it's good you don't listen to CNN. I've heard it. I've heard clips all over it. Like, oh, they, people on CNN saying that we that they should shoot Republicans. Yeah. All right. I'll have to Google that one because that's dumb. Well, here's the thing. It sounds that sounds out there, but it's a it's real. They're they're talking about when when you have when you have Brennan go on there and Platt mm-hmm. go on there. Mm-hmm. They're talking about we're going to need people to come out here and lay their lives down on the on the line. And take up arms to stop the to stop the Republicans. Mm. That's not advocating. No, that's not right. Right, right, right. No, I hear you. Look, I appreciate the call as always, Anthony. And, and what I would my my response is really a sense of disappointment in my own ability to communicate because what I'm hearing from you and what I heard from Colin is not a reflection of what it is that I'm actually trying to say. Cause the, and I understand why you're perceiving it the way you are, but I, I, I long to come up with a way of communicating what I'm trying to say that will be perceived more accurately because I'm not at all advocating for compromising with the left or for, you know, working across the aisle or for, you know, being, being kind of manby pamby and traditional Republican. I would like to think that it's pretty apparent in the way that I engage with the issues on a night-to-night basis that I like to fight and that I'm interested in being aggressive and in defining terms and in getting after truth. But what I'm suggesting is that the objective of all of that has to be 
taking us to a place of liberty and to a place of peace that's enabled through a, a culture of consent. And what I, what I fear is happening right now is that there's this buildup that you cite. There's this buildup of anger for its own sake that ultimately, and you, you speak to it and Colin spoke to it as well, ultimately is going to be released in some violent form if people don't have the hope that we can get to a place of normalcy and prosperity and liberty. Appreciate the, yeah. I don't think so. I really wish it did. I just, I don't think it will. I think it's going to be violent and I'm, I'm terrified for my kids here. Yeah. Honestly. All right. And not to be a fear monger. It's just what it is. I appreciate the call, Anthony. Appreciate you listening to the program. All right. So let's go from that to uh, a subject that's, a little more lighthearted. <laughs> Let's hope so. Because, huh. I mean, just the fact that Republicans are preparing for a revolution, they claim that or people like Anthony and Colin are not perpetuating the revolution, so to say, or claim mm-hmm. they're not, but are preparing for it is, is scary enough. Like, I know that Democrats are advocating for that. The, way, sure. they, the right. way they yeah. speak is... Uh, similar to the French Revolution. Yep. But the fact that Trump supporters and conservatives are acknowledging that and saying we have to prepare for it is also upsetting. Because, yeah, we're like, Walter and I aren't approaching this from the, from the standpoint of moderates. Like, a moderate is someone who will moderately impose on your rights. Moderately right, make right, everyone right, happy. Right, yeah, right. Moderately make everyone unhappy. That's right. not what we're advocating for. We're fighting the exact opposite side, where we are literally fighting a two-front war That's right. against statist Republicans That's and right. statist Democrats. I can't tell you the amount of times I've been in an argument online where I've been arguing against both Republicans and both Democrats. And that's where that's the kind of the the pie chart, the top of the pie chart almost where we fall. We're not right or left. We're at the top and in the center, not at the bottom and the center. Yeah, very well said. I, that's absolutely true. It is a two-front war. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but that's a very accurate metaphor. The position that you find yourself in if you're you're advocating for liberty as the objective, liberty as the, the goal, as the destination, the end point of our endeavor you know, you find it, for some reason that's perceived by some on the right as some sort of compromise. And I, I think that that's reflective of exactly what I started off the show tonight talking about, which is the fact that the culture of conquest has has annexed the minds of people on the right, where they're thinking in terms of who wins and who loses and have have set aside the potential and the the very real necessity of getting to a point where interactions and transactions are win win like the 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 world that we all properly ought to be striving for is one in which transactions and relationships are routinely win win in a condition of liberty that's the only way you can proceed the only way that you can acquire the only way that you can produce the only way that you can obtain profit is by entering into win-win relationships on a consistent basis and bu- building a reputation as somebody who provides value to others, right? And so, you know, we we find ourselves and the the left has consistently put forward this narrative 
that the world is a zero-sum game, the economy is a zero-sum game, there, there are always losers for every winner. There's no such thing as a win-win. If somebody's successful, it's prima facie evidence that they've violated or subjugated somebody else because there's no possible way to get ahead unless you kick somebody else in the face and push them down. Like That's the point of view of the left. And a mirror image of that perspective is creeping its way, more than creeping, it's infecting and spreading in virulent fashion amongst the right, where a lot of folks on the right, particularly when it comes to their political and cultural engagement, have this sense that we can't possibly win. We can't possibly uh, win without without there there being some sort of bloody loss on the other side of that equation. We got uh, what I imagine is a follow-up here from Anthony in Minneapolis, and then we'll have to go to the first break of the hour. Oh, a different Anthony from Minneapolis. We're getting all the Anthonys tonight, apparently. Oh, okay. Never mind. We'll we'll get them back to the. <laughs> I misunderstood what was taking place there. All right. So there's this story out of Mora, Mora, Minnesota. Which, if you're unfamiliar, it's a it's up north. Uh, on you know, I I drive through Mora on a pretty regular basis on the way to the family cabin, especially this year because there's all that construction on 35. That's uh, pretty difficult to get past if you're heading north. But the town of Mora has a community pool, apparently, and it has been the scene for some amount of controversy. Community members in Mora, Minnesota, this is from Fox 9, are responding after two women were asked to cover up while breastfeeding at the Mora Aquatic Center. For a woman to make a big deal out of a woman feeding her child is beyond me. It's crazy, said Nikki Roshlin, who supports breastfeeding. I love the way they report this. They describe the one gal as supporting breastfeeding. Yeah, you know what? There's a distinction between supporting breastfeeding and supporting breastfeeding in public, in front of other people, in front of children, in front of men, right? These are distinct things. You know what else I support? I support urination. I support defecation. But I'm not particularly interested in watching anybody do it. I literally saw a guy... This is so absurd. I saw a guy in Uptown on Sunday at 6 p.m. For whatever reason, there was a little toilet on the sidewalk. And the guy just whipped it out in broad daylight and peed in the toilet. So, yes, this is happening on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, but both of my my boys, 9 and 5, would be very uh, apt to do something like that. But, yeah, I mean... This was a full-grown adult. Yeah, the conversation around breastfeeding and this... this, And I I regard it as a completely fake, ginned-up controversy. Like, I, I firmly believe that these two women did this on purpose specifically to instigate conflict so that they could get in the news and make a big issue out of this and, and do a bunch of virtue signaling about the wonders of, of breastfeeding and being a mother and talking about supporting breastfeeding. What's happened here, uh, and you know, you could fill in the blanks of, of the details and you'll be correct regarding the type of conflict that took place. You know, the, the uh, security got involved and now it's a big hubbub up there in Mora. The the issue at hand is not whether or not mothers can breastfeed their children. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not they get to impose that upon everyone else. Right? You know, again, and and look, I actually this is an apples to apples comparison. When I, I'm not joking when I bring up urination and defecation. We're talking about biological functions, right? And one of the arguments that you'll hear from these advocates for public breastfeeding is that, well, it's natural. 
It's a natural human function. There are all sorts of natural human functions that one does not engage in in sight of other human beings. Okay? All sorts. I don't fart in my cubicle at work as much right. as I would like to. Right. Right. And and if you were to, you certainly don't make a big public display out of it and then, you know, shame everybody else for objecting to the fact that you just did. This is absurd. <laughs> Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk. Doc. Twin Cities News Talk. AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. The number to join us. It's been an interesting evening engaging with you so far. Appreciate the calls. Let's go to Nathan. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I am calling, uh, when you were talking previously about breastfeeding in public, Mm -hmm. um, I had a question come up. Um, I've been listening to your show for about a year and a half now, and Mm -hmm. I rarely hear women call in or women... um, really engaging deeply in conversations of libertarianism. And I'm wondering why you suspect that is um, and uh, what what you think uh, might be the root of that lack of engagement. Two responses. First, women have called into the program. Now, we don't track demographics here on the show, so I can't give you a percentage, but I've talked with more than one woman we have women recurring callers and what have you um but well, you know besi- i guess i'm not really looking for like token numbers or sort of one or two people it's, it's more of uh as a gender i sense that they're not engaging in uh, in, in libertarianism uh, would you say that's true it i would has, agree with him it has been observed it has been observed that women are underrepresented to put it lightly in libertarian circles and there has been uh, some effort put into trying to analyze and be introspective as to why and i personally have not put a whole lot of thought into it what i have read from others who have put thought into it is that libertarianism tends to attract a certain type of male who uh, tends to be very uh, aggressive and off-putting and territorial and you know there's there's a there's a sense amongst there's almost this sense of grievance which is kind of ironic cuz i often talk about the culture of grievance that uh, that permeates in my view the left but there is a sense of grievance that a lot of folks who identify as libertarians have where they feel as though their their life would be better if the policies that they advocate for were put into practice and there's this sense of resentment for it and that resentment can be off-putting and I think it's particularly off-putting to women. Um, and so one of my questions is the way that you engage the conversation with uh, breastfeeding mm-hmm. um, to me to further alienate women rather than rather than taking so a woman, so this, this story, this story of the situation in Mora, it was a woman who initiated the confrontation against the woman who was breastfeeding in public. I mean, this is not a men versus women thing. This is a no, people no, no. who I'm are talking about your, your engagement with the story. Okay. 
so what's your point? What are you trying to say? Um, I'm just saying that I think in many ways your um, your diagnosis also mirrored the tenor that you brought to that story. Okay. You were bringing the same sort of energy that you said alienates women, uh, that you suggested alienates women. You sort of brought that to that coverage of that story um, in my mind. And I'm wondering... Um, so why, why is this? I'm interested in why this is why you called in. Like, why do you care whether or not I'm alienating women by talking about breastfeeding in what you regard to be whatever inappropriate terms? Um, because I actually think that libertarianism it can be a strong ally of progressivism. Um, and I am a really strong progressive and um, on the right. Uh, so is what I said, is what I said, is it just that libertarians than with progressives? Let let me get this question out. Let me get this question out. Was it just the tone or was it the facts? Like what I had to say about the issue of women breastfeeding in public, did you take issue with the facts or just with the way in which I presented them? Um, Well, your assumption that they were doing it in order to antagonize um was felt like a really have you read the article um secondly i think that protesting and doing public displays like oh okay so my assumption that that's what they were doing is wrong but you would support that if that what if they were doing that you support it i'm confused here as to what the point is that you're trying to bring to the table i'm trying to bring to the table that i think the way that you talked about the story further alienated uh, women from the cause of libertarianism, which I have a lot of respect for. Um, And it seemed not in line with the core values of the show, which I enjoy listening to. So I always, okay. So what's the core value of the show that I was out of alignment with? Well, I just think taking ideas seriously and taking people seriously and... Um, well, it should be clear. I mean, I... Liberty, I, also liberty. Liberty is a core value. And there's... So I have to, the liberty to take my children to a pool where they're not subjected to people exposing themselves, right? Like, I, my freedom of association is manifest in going to places where the rules are such where when I walk in the door, I know that they're not going to see ding-dongs and boobies flinging around all over the place because those are the rules that are posted. Even the energy that you're bringing to my response seems like out of place in a discussion about human sexuality, parenting. um, How is it out of place? How? How is it out of place? You're using ding-dong and boobies when we're talking about... In order to make a point, in order to emphasize what it is that we're actually talking about. Because it seems as though when I listen to folks who defend this type of public display, that they want to ignore what's actually taking place. They want to ignore the objective reality of what we're actually talking about. And so I use harsh terminology to put you in a position where you can't avoid it. You can't evade it because it's right there in front of your face, just like the literal exposure is in front of the face of children up there and more. I appreciate the call as always, Nathan. I appreciate you listening to the program. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. More reality when we return. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. I see 
appreciate the continued patronage that Nathan gives us, you know, a self-identified progressive who listens to the show, who contributes to the show, calls in on a semi-regular basis. I sincerely appreciate that. I stand baffled at the interaction that we just had, though. Like, I, I don't understand in a context where the left side of the political spectrum, the left side of the culture, routinely engages in demonizing their political opponents as racists, as sexists, as homophobes, as traitors, right? Yeah, There is no insult, there is no disparagement that the left will turn away from or restrain itself from when it comes to engaging with their political opponents, and not even in trying to make a point just for the sake of the rhetoric. In my case, when I'm talking about this story out of Mora, where you had two women who were breastfeeding in public at a pool and were confronted by another woman and then by staff when they refused to follow what I take to be the rules that are in place at this pool. When I respond to that story by making the comparison between breastfeeding and other bodily functions, urination, defecation, you know, there are other functions we can get into as well, right? If we, if we want to get, get really coarse about it, my point, I'm actually trying to make a point by employing that rhetoric. And the point is that there are certain bodily functions that despite the fact that they're natural, nonetheless, properly ought to take place behind closed doors with some degree of privacy. This is not a controversial or shouldn't be a controversial proposition. And the idea that women as a group, like all women everywhere, apparently, are offended by this notion, first of all, is factually incorrect, right? Because this is this is just like abortion isn't an issue that is all women agree on. That's a complete fallacy. That's a fiction that's put forward, you know, trying to to portray the pro-choice position as a woman's position where every woman is at when that's absolutely positively not the case. In a similar sense, women cross the spectrum when it comes to this question of public breastfeeding. So, you know, if, if I'm offending women out there by addressing this issue in the way that I am, l- let me start with this. I don't care. I don't care. Because my objective is not to respect your stupid opinion. My objective is to confront it to demonstrate that it's stupid and compel you to change it. Now, if if you're not if you're not going to be compelled by the way that I'm addressing it, then hopefully you'll be compelled by the rest of society that agrees with me that it's a bad idea to expose yourself in public. Let's go to Pete in Lake City. Welcome to the program. Hi, Walter. Yeah, I was picking up on some uh, fallacies he was throwing out first fallacy wasn't attacking the argument was attacking you mm-hmm. that was clear second fallacy he spoke for women right and he said you were offensive to women but he just offended a whole bunch of women who i believe i don't have any data on this issue but i believe that would be the majority of women would be against this even a woman addressed her about it right and uh so he's speaking for women and i think a lot of women find that offensive that he spoke for them especially being a male and to use his own logic uh, so I, I, I think his argument, he, he also didn't want to take a position 
because his position, he I think he clearly realized was wrong. I'm not sure he realized he was attacking the argument. I, honestly, that that was part of what baffled me the most is that he never really seemed to articulate a position. Like his in, the entire point of his call seemed to be that he didn't like the language that I used and thought that the my tone and tenor and the language that I had chosen was turning women off of libertarianism, which seems like a strange concern for a progressive to bring to the table. But apparently, you know, he perceives this link between this potential alliance between libertarians and progressives, which I, I guess, on, certainly on certain issues, that's true, criminal justice and such. But in terms of overall, no, overall, we're adversaries. Overall, we're pointing in very different directions in terms of where we want to see society go and public policy go. Well, he mentioned liberty, and I think that's stating his position. He doesn't find that offensive, and there may be he may even go further than just simple breastfeeding out in public. Maybe just women being topless, and who knows where right. draw the line, you know. But society as a whole has said we don't agree with this, and for good reason. And uh, he he doesn't want to bring that up because he knows his stance that he actually believes is counter to what most society. So he makes the false argument that you're offending women. Well, I don't think you offended women. Did you offend a few women? I'm sure you did. You offended a few guys, but I think the majority... I offend a lot of everybody all the time, and, and I care not. I lose not a wink of sleep over it because my goal is not to make people happy or to attract people to my cause. My goal is to state the truth, and uh, the chips will fall where they may on that front. I appreciate your call, Pete. Well, I just found an article here from The Guardian. It's from 2015, and it's English. You know, it's data from England, but it says six out of ten women who breastfeed take steps to hide it in public, and a third feel embarrassed or uncomfortable nursing outside the home, a survey has found. So it found that one in five people believed uh, did not want them to breastfeed in public, and so women, one in five women believe that people do not want them to breastfeed in public, and one in ten choose not to nurse their baby uh, or influenced by worry of doing so outside of the home. So there is a significant number that even though they might support it, they like take steps to they are covered cons- up. They're considerate of other right. people. That's another way to put it. They're considerate of of other human beings. And yeah, you know, this notion of, you know, Nathan did bring up the liberty of the woman to breastfeed her child. It's interesting to me because I don't that use of the word liberty in that context is not actually liberty. That that is an that is a license that is an imposition of your desire on other people. If the rules at the pool and the policy at the pool is such that that behavior is expected to take place in a a, a semi private condition, then for you to take that action anyway and to defy the people who approach you, the staff who approach you, and the security that approaches you, and ultimately the police that approach you and say, "Hey, you need to stop. You need to." to to leave here because you're not following the rules, you are not exercising your liberty. You are imposing upon the liberty of others. Yeah, and even at Twins games and Timberwolves games and I think even Vikings games, they have designated nursing mothers' rooms. Right. That I think if a woman uh, started breastfeeding while they're sitting in the stands watching the game, that would be that would be reason to kick someone out. But if right. they go to the room and do it, nobody is going to have an issue with it. Right. And I think that everyone in the stadium who saw that going on and the woman being kicked out would be would be like oh okay yeah that 
like she broke the rules. That makes sense. Except for the very vocal minority right. who for whom this is a a pillar of activism and a, and a place to hang their hat of virtue upon of how you know. We, and I've never understood. I don't. I don't get what the impetus is to try to move the culture in a direction where you can breastfeed publicly or where women could go topless publicly. It to me, it all feeds into like the root of it is the this desire to try to undermine the concept of gender as such and to try to equate men and women and pretend as though there's no meaningful differences between the genders and to and to act as though any sort of difference in conduct or or social expectation among men and women is inherently discriminatory rather than just an acknowledgement of a biological and social reality let's talk to leland in minneapolis Another man chiming in on this subject. How dare we, Leland? Welcome to the program. Apparently we lost him. All right. Well, I mean, it times out. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1135 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself... Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name is Walter Utzon. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. It's been a robust conversation this evening with folks on the right and the left, virtually none of whom agree with me. <laughs> Which should tell you something, shouldn't it? You know, drawing opposition from all quarters. As Brad put it earlier today, it's a two-front war. It's a war on two fronts. You know, when you're when you're ticking off everyone, uh, maybe it's some indication that you're doing something right. All right. So from the New York Times, something uh, perhaps we can all get on board with and all uh, be on the same side of. Mark Zuckerberg, the Facebook chief executive, said in an interview published Wednesday that he would not automatically remove denials that the Holocaust took place from the site, a remark that caused an uproar online. Mr. Zuckerberg's comments were made during an interview with the tech journalist Kara Schwisher that was published on the site Recode. Hours later, Mr. Zuckerberg tried to clarify his comments in an email to Recode. In the interview, Mr. Zuckerberg had been discussing what content Facebook would remove from the site and noted that in countries like Myanmar and Sri Lanka, the dissemination of hate speech can have immediate and dire consequences. Moments earlier, he had also defended his company's decision to allow content from the conspiracy site InfoWars to be distributed on Facebook. This is what he had to say. The principles that we have on what we remove from the service are, if it's going to result in real harm, real physical harm, or if you're attacking individuals, then that content shouldn't be on the platform. There's a lot of categories of that we can get into, but then there's broad debate. That's what Zuckerberg said. And that was controversial. It was controversial that before he resorts to removing pages or removing content or, and you know, I don't know that this standard is actually a standard that's being used by the administrators of Facebook. I'm sure there's probably several examples we could look to where content that did not fit this category of causing real physical harm to someone has been removed and sure, in fact, I'd be willing to put money on 
the vast majority of content that gets removed from YouTube and Facebook and Twitter in no way physically harms literally anyone. It's 100% arbitrary and oftentimes left to bots who are ham-handed. So, you know, this too goes back to what we started the show with, this contrast between the culture of conquest and the culture of consent. You, we see a lot of attacks on free speech and a lot of attacks on free expression. And, you know, those, those two things, we, I, I need to make the distinction because, you know, free speech is something that, that is evoked out of context quite often. You know, when people talk about the First Amendment rights and they talk about the freedom of speech in a political sense. In the, in the political sense, the freedom of speech is you're not going to be prosecuted. You're not going to be thrown in jail or fined because of the content of what you said. But there's also kind of tangential to that the idea of the freedom of expression or or free expression, which really doesn't have anything to do with government. It has more to do with the culture that we live in and whether or not people are willing to engage with ideas or whether they want to shut opposition down. And we've, we increasingly see in the culture, because it's increasingly a culture of conquest, a lack of tolerance for opposing viewpoints and a lack of tolerance for incorrect information, fake news, as you might say. This drive to purge the internet, to purge the public space of incorrect information or offensive information, is it, that in and of itself is indicative of a much larger much more dangerous problem than what the dif- disinformation potentially presents. You know, if you're concerned, let's look at InfoWars as the example, because that's was specifically brought up by Zuckerberg. If you want to make the case that InfoWars puts a lot of sketchy information out there, I'm not going to argue with you. Okay. I've, I've been, I've been to varying degrees over the years. I've entertained the musings of Alex Jones for entertainment purposes and recreational value uh, for quite some time, long enough to know that just about every word that falls out of the guy's mouth and is posted on his website needs to be taken with a huge grain of salt. I know that. I know that. I discerned that. I don't need somebody else to tell me that. I don't need the government to classify it for me. I don't need Facebook to hire fact checkers to let me know that InfoWars is a little shady, right? Like, I can figure it out. And there's a lack of faith that certain actors in our culture and in our politics have in in your ability and in the ability of individuals everywhere to apply discernment to information and to sort out truth from fiction. And that lack of faith spawns or manifests, metastasizes, into a conviction to shut people down, to shut InfoWars down, to shut down the Holocaust deniers, to, to purge speech from the ether in order to fight it. And it's actually a, a terrible vote of no confidence in the ability of human beings to discern reality and in one's own confidence in their ability to confront misinformation, analyze it, and combat it with the truth. 
If you think that the only way that you can combat Holocaust deniers is to shut them up, to shut them down, to ban their pages, to delete their comments. If if that's the only way you feel, like if that what you're saying is is that you believe in a world where if there's enough Holocaust deniers, if there's enough people out there saying the Holocaust didn't happen, then that's suddenly going to make it so. Or that it's somehow going to catch on and people are going to, there's going to be this widespread belief that the Holocaust didn't happen. There is precisely zero danger of that in a condition of liberty. The only way that you're going to find a scenario where, you know, you talk about the big lie, you talk about disinformation. Disinformation cannot survive the disinfectant of sunlight, it cannot survive the marketplace of ideas. If you allow people to interact, if you allow people to engage, if you allow ideas to be digested and considered and discerned, then the truth will come out and the truth will prevail. It's only in a culture like the one that is currently being fostered and nurtured, this culture of conquest, wherein you decide, well, here's the scope of acceptable speech. Here's the scope of acceptable expression. Here's what we're going to allow and what we're going to ban. It's only in that context that lies are enabled to spread and to take root and to metastasize and to become larger than life. When they're supported, when they're they're put up and maintained and fertilized, by the impositions of institutions. This is something that we should avoid. And we shouldn't be afraid of bad information. We shouldn't be afraid of false statements. We should be confident in our ability to confront them and to deconstruct them and to combat them with the truth. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855. Tomorrow we'll be live and local. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.